you know what I mean? Hello, everyone. Hi, listeners. We are so glad that you joined us today. Welcome back to another yeah. exciting episode of I'm Horrified. Yeah, with your hosts, Allie Rayner. And Sam Buntich. Yay, that's us. We're doing it. It's the two of us. We're back to record more stuff for you. How are you? I'm good. Here's what I'll say. You have been in a frenzy prepping for this episode. I have been. So I'm deeply excited to hear what you have to say, to be educated, to learn something, to have more empathy for my fellow man, to face the evils of the world. I don't oh, know what God. you're going to talk about, but I oh, feel like... Oh, that's a big bill for me to cash. I feel like all that stuff's going to happen. And then I'm also excited because I'm going to talk to you about something dumb. Which is what I'm most excited about. Hell yeah. But yeah, so today um, I'm going to talk about the Canadian Indian Residential School System. And I'm going to talk about EXP Edition. Like, I don't even know what that is. Yeah. You know what I mean? And, but and I don't want to know yet. And I don't want to know yet. until I learn about your thing. Right. So let's get started. This is going to be a long one. And I want to start off um, this segment by saying three things. The first thing is that this segment comes with a significant trigger warning for forced cultural assimilation, specifically towards Native communities, for child abuse, and for sexual violence. Oof. So if you are not in the right place to be hearing about those topics, please skip ahead a significant amount until you get to Sam's segment. Yeah. The second thing I want to say is that I pronounce a few words from Aboriginal languages in this segment, and I have done my best to research their pronunciation, but please, if I get anything wrong, or if there are multiple pronunciations of a word, reach out on Twitter and let me know, because I would love to learn, and I'm sure a lot of other people would. And the third thing I want to say is Thank you so much to Sam on Twitter, not you, Sam, but Twitter Sam, one of our listeners from Canada who reached out to tell us about this topic. I exchanged with her a little bit. She is a Mohawk from Aguasasne, which is a territory that spreads between Ontario, Quebec, and New York State also known as the Mohawk Nation, Mm -hmm. Um, and she reached out to us and shared this topic with me, and she also told me that both of her grandmothers are survivors of what I'm about to talk about. So thank you so much, Sam, for sharing this topic and for sharing your story with us. We appreciate it, and, you know, neither of us knew anything about this. Yeah. And as Americans, you know, as Americans, we weren't taught about this, and we should know about this, so we're both grateful to learn. Yeah, thank you, Sam. So with all of that being said... Let's get started. I want to begin with the definition of cultural assimilation for everyone, because that really is the backbone of this piece of history, cultural assimilation. It's a process in which a minority group or culture comes to resemble a dominant group or culture. So when I refer to assimilation or forced assimilation, that's what I'm referring to. Mm -hmm. This is an extremely damaging and unacceptable process that has happened in virtually every corner of the world. Yeah. Um, If you open a good history textbook, you Mm -hmm. will find this in every corner of the world, chiefly because of colonialism, which is... (laughs) Which I'm horrified. Yeah. So many of the things I'm about to describe are common themes among... Other instances of cultural assimilation, and that's really important for everyone to know, but particularly white or otherwise privileged parties, which includes Sam and I, Mm -hmm. to consider. Honestly, one of the most upsetting parts about all this is that a lot of these practices aren't very unique. So to put all of this in historical context, the colonizing bullshit in Canada began pretty much the day the French arrived, as French colonists began to spread their way through New France in the 17th century. So, like, New France is all of the land that they owned in North America around this time, and it spread from, like, modern-day Quebec to, like, as far down as Louisiana. Like, wow. it's so big. That's wild. Um, 
Yeah, I'm familiar with, obviously, New England and New Amsterdam. But yeah, not New, New France. France. I think the Louisiana Purchase was involved. I... Oh, yeah, because we bought it from about. the French. That would yes. make sense. Okay, back to the story. <laughs> and the efforts to assimilate Aboriginal communities at that point were lackluster and mostly unsuccessful as the efforts revolved around missionaries who were spread pretty thin because the French had just gotten there and they were sort of moving around and missionaries weren't really working to persuade anyone in these tight-knit communities who were rightfully extremely suspicious of the incoming French. Mm -hmm. In the early 1800s, the idea of bringing Native children into schools to promote assimilation started coming into the public consciousness. So that's not a new concept. It's something that happened in America as Mm -hmm. well. But notably around this time, the Mohawk Institute Residential School opened and began its tenure as the longest continually operated residential school in Canada, spanning from 1834 to 1970. Wow. Yeah. Something I read, which I found very eye-opening about this spark in interest on behalf of the Canadian government in opening these schools was the effects of the War of 1812. Mm -hmm. So apparently, like, American invasion was starting to feel like a very real thing. Interesting. And so they were like, you know, in this time of crisis, and so there was this building resentment towards Native populations of like, you know, you're keeping us from having a solidified French government here, and you're not being allies to us, and you're going to impede us, Mm -hmm. and it's going to make things easier for the Americans to come in, all of this stuff. Um, So this was a thought that was sort of being molded around in Canadian society, the idea of residential schools. But there was now this, like, sense of urgency on the brink of maybe being invaded by the American forces. Mm -hmm. Which is just a whole new level of upsetting, because it feels so cold and inhuman. You know, it all is, but just, like, another layer of Native populations being treated not as people, but as obstacles or a problem that needs to be fixed. Yeah. Which is the backbone of this entire slice of history and cultural assimilation in general, like the Uh idea of a a problem that needs to be solved, um, which is also the backbone of genocide, which we'll talk about. So what followed was a network of, at its peak, 80 residential schools in Canada that were owned and funded by the Canadian government, but managed by a variety of Christian churches, predominantly Catholic. What a shock. Remember (laughs) Magdalene Laundries? I mentioned before the first school opened in 1834, the last school closed its doors in 1996. What? Um, We were alive. We were alive. We were two, but we were alive. Its impact on children who attended, as well as the Native communities who suffered as a whole, has been defined as a cultural genocide at this point in history. So now I'm going to talk about the condition of the schools, and this is a renewed trigger warning. The conditions I'm about to describe remained pretty much the same until the 1950s. So bear that in mind. Children were forbidden to speak in their native languages, forced only to speak English or French though many knew nothing of either, um, and were punished when they didn't comply. They were also only allowed to write letters to their families in English, which most children's parents couldn't read. And they knew that. Like, they knew that that would separate them from their families. they couldn't communicate. Yeah, it was like a tactic. So that meant that some children didn't have contact with their families for 10 months out of the year, and some children went to school year-round, so some lost contact for years at a time. Oh my gosh. Um, and this was all by design to completely isolate these children from their communities and traditions to enforce cultural assimilation. As one horrific politician whose name escapes me said, the goal of these schools was to, quote, kill the Indian child. They didn't want them to be part of their native culture anymore. Yeah. So why was this 
allowed to happen. Um, an amendment to the Indian Act of Canada in 1884 made attendance at day schools, industrial schools, or residential schools compulsory for Indigenous children. So what Canada basically did is that since so many communities and reservations were located in remote areas, they didn't put day schools or industrial schools near their communities. Oh. They only put residential schools in kind of the vicinity of their communities. And so families were forced to comply with this. It was, like, against the law not to send your kid to school yeah. there. But you couldn't just send them to, like, a, no a day school and then get them back and be like, ignore everything your teacher no. said. Yeah, you couldn't do that because, because it went further than oh, well, I guess you have to go. They were purposefully making sure that these children were going to residential schools because that way they could be isolated. Yeah, for at least most of the year. forcefully culturally assimilated. Ugh. Um, and naturally, families traveled long distances and camped outside schools in order to visit their children. I read this, which I read prompted an infamous Canadian politician, Hader Reid, to propose that schools should be moved further away from their native communities to keep families from visiting. Fucking asshole. Oh my god. These um, are kids. Yeah, exactly. And it's just, it's so inhumane, like, all of it. And as I've alluded to, verbal and physical abuse and humiliation were approved tactics at these schools. Allegations of sexual abuse from staff members or older students came to light in shocking numbers over the years as more and more survivors came forward. And along with that, the schools were extremely poorly funded and relied on the labor of students to keep running. No good. Don't yeah. Do that. So, like, they were told that it was like a work mm -hmm. element of their schooling, but it was basically just forced child labor. Oh my God. And this is something that I found singularly disturbing. The Canadian government at one point did a nutritional study using some of the children and purposely kept a group of them malnourished as a control sample. And that is so, so reminiscent of genocidal tactics yeah. that we learned about in the European Holocaust, you know, yeah. like using children as test samples. And this is not seen as the same thing, but it is a cultural genocide. There, there was, there was abuse happening and specific inhumane mistreatment, but because it was happening in native communities, it's seen differently and it doesn't get as much light. I just don't understand. And like, Unfortunately, this is a very relevant thing that I'm about to say. How can you look at a child, regardless of if they are from the same culture or background as you, and not see a child who should be protected and cared for? I know. And stay with their parents and, like, be given the things they Food need to, to thrive. and love. Yeah, it's... Like, it doesn't Ugh. matter if the child is from a cultural background even if you are a shitty person and not a fan of someone else's cultural background. Yeah, how can that extend to children? It's a ch they're, they're a child. Yeah. Like, I just don't. It's so, yeah. it's so and it's, hard. And it just kind of underscores that element, which is one of the most sinister that underlies so much racism and xenophobia, which is you're removing people of their humanity. Yeah. You're stripping humanity away. Yeah. So the, uh, the last thing that I'll say about the conditions of the homes, which is gruesome is that similarly to the mother baby mother and baby homes that we discussed in episode 10 mortality rates were very high in residential schools oh, naturally because of the poor conditions and lack of medical screenings coupled with the abuse that was happening and naturally this was pr not properly recorded some estimates put death counts into as high as the tens of thousands in their tenure Many children were buried in unmarked graves before their parents were even notified. Oh, my God. Um, and many students tried to run away, and in some tragic cases died from exposure rather than turning back 
to return to school. So that's like another indicator of just how terrible these schools were and how desperately children were trying to get away was even if they were faced with the exposure of the elements in rural Canada, they wouldn't turn back. Um, Sam, who sent in this topic, um, sent me the story of Lawrence Jack Atlantic and Dennis Dick, who tracked for nearly two weeks trying to reach home, but ultimately passed away. (gasps) So that, their story is online. So that's all I have to say about the conditions of the schools. But I wanted to pull some firsthand accounts for you and focus on their words, because as with any tragedy, genocide, or mass trauma, stories of those who are affected and remain at the center of the narrative are the most important and valuable for future generations. Mm -hmm. And there has been a lot of recording done by organizations that I'll talk about later of people's stories. That's Um, So I got these quotes from the, the Truth and Reconciliation Commission of Canada's website, which I'll talk about later. So Rachel Shakasim from Aquan, which is in Canada, said, I remember how they took our clothes, the clothes that we wore when we left, and they also cut our hair. We had short hair from then on. Lydia Ross said, my name was Lydia, but in the school, I didn't have a name. I had numbers. I had number 51, number 44, number 32, number 16, number 11, and then finally number one when I was just about coming to high school. So I didn't have a name. I had numbers. And again, just like the dehumanizing element. Yeah. And these are kids. (laughs) Madeline Dion Stout wrote, there was a sense of separation and the sense of not connecting to your own, you know, the people who would mean the most to you, your family members and your community members, a complete separation. And that's something I read about in a bunch of different places that was so heartbreaking as well, is that even when these children would return to their communities, ultimately, even like during the summer after they left the schools, they had so much trouble integrating into their own societies and they were faced with confusion and otherness or self-hatred towards their own native communities because that's what they were being told about their communities, that their communities were evil, that they were dirty, that they were, you know, bad in some way. So they carried that with them. Agnes Mills, who was a former student at All Saints Residential School in Saskatchewan, said, I wanted to be white so bad. The worst thing I ever did was I was ashamed of my mother, that honorable woman, because she couldn't speak English. Yeah. The self-hatred, that self-hatred aspect. Yeah, and it's not just like... You're robbing their culture from them in two ways. Like, you're not letting them connect to it, but you're also making them ashamed of it so they don't even want to. Right. Like, it's just... And it's so purposeful. Yeah. It's so calculated. Mm Mm-hmm. So this is the last one I'll read, and this was a really powerful story from Jeanette Basil Laloque, and she said, They gave us a lesson on the Pentecost, and then the principal father came in with the inspector. You had to have good posture. Then they explained to us the Pentecost. He said, The apostles had tongues of fire on the top of their heads. Then they started speaking in all languages. I said, No, they didn't speak my language. He insisted, Yes, Jeanette, they spoke your language. I said, no, it is impossible that they could have spoken my language because I began to rebel then. The God that my grandmother taught me about, my grandparents taught me, he was nothing like theirs. So in the late 50s and early 60s, efforts began to swell among families and Native communities to demand better schooling conditions for their children and ultimately the ability for them to run these schools themselves. In the summer of 1970, in the Saddle Lake Reserve in Alberta, Canada, there was a 17-day sit-in at the Blue Quills Indian School. 
demanding that governance of the school be given to the indigenous communities in the area. As many as a thousand people are believed to have participated. That's amazing. Which, like, that's awesome for, like, rural Canada. Yeah, holy shit. <laughs> for this, like, huge upswell. It became the first indigenous-administered school in the country's history, and it actually became the first indigenous-governed university in Canada. Wow. Um, so it still exists to this day. That's amazing. Um, through the incredible, unyielding efforts of Native communities... The residential schools slowly either shut their doors or transitioned into a school that was governed by the communities they served. And as I mentioned earlier, the last school closed their doors in the mid-1990s. That's crazy. I mean, to me, an amazing thing about that is, like, at that point, the parents, the people protesting, would have gone through that school system. Yes, exactly. So, like, they were able to, like, get over their years of shame, like, forced shame and, like, cultural genocide and say, like, we have to put our foot down. We yeah. can't just let this keep going. Yeah, which means, as horrific as all of this was, they didn't believe that their heritage was wrong. And yes. they, they believed it was something to be to be valued and treasured. So while this was an incredible triumph, it does not mean that this chapter of history closed in 1996. Mm-hmm. The effects of this cultural genocide on Native communities in Canada are lasting and devastating. Many children return to their communities having their languages quite literally beaten and humiliated out of them, which has left many of those languages endangered. Yeah. So some of them still remain endangered because of the effects of residential schooling. During a 2010 study of intergenerational trauma in Indigenous Canadian communities, Gwen Reimer described that the, quote, cumulative stress and grief experienced by Aboriginal communities is transitioned into a collective experience of cultural disruption and a collective memory of powerlessness and loss. Mm -hmm. So this is something that has been discussed in a lot of cases of marginalized or traumatized communities throughout history. Notably, I think, to Americans survivors and ancestors of the Atlantic slave trade. So that's something that I've learned about in conjunction with the Atlantic slave trade as an American student. Um, But that is this idea of transgenerational or inherited trauma. And that is something that might be very difficult to understand if it's not something, and it's obviously not something that either of us experienced. Mm -hmm. But it's so important for us to think about that, especially, Especially when it comes to the conversations surrounding the ludicrous idea that we live in a post-racial society. And, like, so many times I hear conservative, you know, newscasters being like, what are people upset about? Like, blah, 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 blah. And it's like, these things ripple. You know what yeah. I mean? They ripple and they last. Mm-hmm. And and this this piece of history is a really obvious example of it. Mm-hmm. But it's, it's everywhere. Yeah. So... So because of this, there is an inflated rate of alcohol and substance abuse in Canadian Native communities and an inflated rate of sexual violence and suicidal tendencies. And this has been linked directly to the trauma of forced assimilation. Yeah. So in the aftermath of this, many groups have sprung up in Canada, both grassroots and government-affiliated, to bring healing to as many survivors as possible and to document firsthand accounts for posterity, some of which we've already talked about, Mm -hmm like the TRC. The federal government announced in 2007 a 1.9 billion compensation package for those forced to attend residential schools, um, which sounds good, but it was actually given in increments over time. So, like, you would get $10,000 the first year and then $3,000 in subsequent years, which, like, that doesn't feel like enough, but no, obviously no amount is enough. Yeah. Um, but it just <laughs> doesn't even feel close. Yeah. And then 
the organization I talked about earlier, the Truth and Reconciliation Commission of Canada, that was a commission that operated from 2008 to 2015 that published reports from studies done investigating the residential schools and the lasting effects on survivors, Mm -hmm. as well as establishing calls to action moving forward. So on their website, you can see the studies that they've done. That's where I got those first-hand accounts from, and they've done a lot of sort of chronicling of what happens and more scientific studies. Uh, There's also the Legacy of Hope Foundation in Ontario. That is an Indigenous-led organization that seeks to educate future Canadians about the history of residential schools, and you can visit them or donate to them at legacyofhope.ca. They're a great organization. And on their website, they also have a crisis line for survivors, so that's a great tool for them to provide. There's also a magazine exclusively dedicated to educating people about residential schools and telling survivor stories which I couldn't believe that there was like a whole magazine dedicated to this, but it really just shows you how much of an impact it has had and how lasting it is. Mm -hmm. And that is called Residential School Magazine, and that's available online. And the incredible Indigenous communities of Canada continue, despite all this trauma and violence against them, to speak their languages, tell their stories, and pass on their traditions. So to close out this segment, I wanted to read an excerpt from an article written by an intergenerational survivor named Jordan Apetagon, who describes the trauma of being raised by two parents who were still reeling from their own violent experiences in the residential schools. Yeah. And this ultimately led to addiction and violence and incarceration. So he spoke about his healing process here. Quote, residential schools is the birthplace of all the pain in my life, but it no longer dictates my life. Though I sometimes find myself imagining what life could have been like if my parents weren't exposed to such revolting acts of abuse, neglect, and violence, I know that all of my experiences have shaped me into the man I am today. My children will not know the pain of intergenerational trauma like I did. Every day I wake up sober, a free man, surrounded by people who truly love me and believe in me. I am blessed, and I vow to myself that I will never walk a path of destruction again. And I tell myself, I am worthy of love, I am worthy of forgiveness, I am worthy of a good life. So that's really all I have to say. I mean, there's a lot to think about, and I don't want to talk too much more about it just because our opinions are not necessarily the most important here. No. That was a joke. They're super not. Um, But all those resources, I mean, I'm going to go on every one of those websites and read stuff Just read as much as you possibly can because I think that's really why I wanted to cover this segment is because I did not even know what this was. Like, I didn't, it's not that I didn't know the scope of it. I just didn't know. Mm -hmm. And then that led me to learn about it in America. And it happened here too. Yeah. And that's unacceptable for me to be a person in the world and a person in North America and to not understand the extent of suffering that have been suffered and is still being suffered by people, you know, my age or my parents' age. So all I want to say is thank you so much again to Sam, our pal on Twitter, for passing the story along to us. And she also mentioned to us that both of her grandmothers, who I mentioned were survivors, have returned to Native culture in some way. So as she said, they're both Mohawk, and one is fluent in her Native language, and the other practices as a medicine woman. So that's just, you know, an incredible resilience in the face of all of this. That's amazing and and we're championing all of the voices that we talked about today. Yes. And it's so unfair because, you know, there should have been nothing to come back from. Exactly. There should have been nothing to you know, overcome. Yeah. And that's not, you know... It's not like, oh my god, a good there was thing. an earthquake and we yeah. have to come back. It's, it's like, oh, people made shitty decisions. 
It doesn't, it doesn't add anything to it because it's just garbage. Like, the fact that this happens and continues to happen is just garbage. It's not, it's not, like, a heroic factor of it, but the fact that the spirit of all of these Native communities individually was so strong that they're still thriving is just a testament to them, you know what I mean? So, yeah, um, I feel really blessed to have been able to learn so much about this. Yeah. And if you have any experiences with this, we would love to know. You know, as I said, Sam reached out to us about this on Twitter. So mm-hmm. if there's other things that you want us to talk about, please tell us. Yeah, we're really We feel really, really just super honored to have an awesome group of people hanging out with us on social media who are interested in learning more about the world, whether it's horrifying or not. Yes. So thank you for telling me about that. So that is the Canadian Indian Residential School System. And I think we need a bit, not an overwhelming palate cleanser, but I do think this should not be quite so heavy. Do you have good news? Yeah, so I mean, here's an interesting thing. Um, In a way, my story is kind of connected to that. Oh no! In a way less heavy. Good. Culturally important for memory. Less damaging. Way. Yes. Good. Okay, I'll take it at this point. Yes. Um, so, I'm gonna talk about EXP edition. Tell me what on God's green earth that is. So, to explain this story, I have to give a quick lesson on the basics of K-pop. This is why you made me watch K-pop videos yesterday. Yes, exactly. I wanted us to be on about the same page. Okay. And obviously, I am not an expert in K-pop in any sense of the word. Right. You just wanted to talk about this particularly horrifying topic. And And so I have been kind of, I've wanted, like, a general context of K-pop. It's a weird and wild and catchy as fuck world that I have barely dipped a toe into. Mm -hmm. Please go to the internet because, like, it's all over. And people who love it, please send us your favorite videos. Please send us your favorite. Because I absolutely loved the music videos that you showed to me. They're fabulous. We now have a favorite K-pop band, and they're called Priston. Oh, I love them. (laughs) So, K-pop is Kind of what it sounds like. Korean pop. It is a genre of pop music from Korea that is huge all over the world. It is like a $5 billion a year industry now. Wow. Yeah. It, that is so much money. So it kind of started happening in the 1980s, and it's just South Korea putting their own spin on westernized pop music. So it's like the Western world invented pop, as you would think about it, and then South Korea kind of made it their own, and that's what k-pop is so that's kind of the obvious definition k-pop is korean pop (laughs) love it but you can kind of get into it more the french institute national de l'audiovisuel is that a good french accent yeah it's great um perfect (laughs) thanks what region of france are you from oh god america (laughs) so this cool french body about music defines k-pop as a fusion of synthesized music, sharp dance routines, and fashionable, colorful outfits. So, like, I think that's really important, is that K-pop is not just pop music. It is the aesthetic, it is the way of dancing, it is the look of the performers. Like, all of that creates K-pop. It's not just, like, a song. Right. It's a world. Yeah. And so... K-pop stars are called idols, you're a K-pop idol, and they often go to K-pop idol training schools for literally years to learn to dance and sing and look perfect. I love that. Yeah, and they're, like, very, like, strict, and, like, you get, like, 
it's kind of expected that you will have, like, paid your dues in a K-pop school <laughs> before you become a K-pop idol. That's a little wild. Yeah, and you'll, like, a lot of times they'll do a lot of, like, talent TV shows, and, like, that's part of the way you pay your dues, and, like, it, it, it is, like, very systemized kind of how you become an idol. And it's, like, it's all about perfection. Think young Britney Spears on crack. Like, that's the K-pop aesthetic to me. Their dance moves were just, like, tight. Sharp. Yes. Fabulous. Amazing. And I remember thinking, like, I've never seen as precise and fabulous dancing in, like, a boy band. Like, NSYNC was just kind of, like, slithered around, giving you, like, sexy looks, but they weren't actually working for it. Exactly. So Allie and I watched a couple K-pop music videos yesterday, just because I wanted us both to have an idea of, like, what K-pop looks like, what it should look like. But that's, that's what I'd say, right? It's tight choreography. Yeah. It's fun. It's, it's, it's very, very fun. And it is, like, synthesized style music. Yeah. That's what K-pop is. Yeah. To us, who are both white and not from Korea. Right. So that's a big... There are much better explanations of K-pop, I'm sure. So this brings us to EXP edition. Who I'm, are they? I'm going to say a sentence and I just want you to tell me how it feels to you. EXP edition is the first white K-pop group. No. No. That's an oxymoron. How does that sit with you? For me, it sits weird. It sits bad. It's bad. K-pop is... It's Korean Korean. It's... That's the K. But then it's like, also, it's a genre of music. Like, is it fine for anyone to perform genres of music? They're just genres of music. No. I don't know. I feel very confused. Let's dig in. Okay. Now that I feel sure, but <laughs> please tell me more. Okay, I felt sure, but then I felt less sure the more I looked into it. So here's how it was founded. This is very interesting. EXP Edition was founded as just EXP, and it was founded in 2015 or 2014-ish by a Korean-American woman named Bora Kim as a thesis project at Columbia. So Bora, um, I think I think Bora is originally from Korea, but has lived in America for a long time, obviously was going to college there, and she was interested in how gender is performed in pop culture and how it relates to other issues in our globalized society. So to investigate that, she like she literally kickstarted a program called I'm Making a Boy Band, and she founded EXP. And EXP was like short for experiment. And so she got six American dudes to create this K-pop band. So it was originally six. Now it's four. So I really only know much about the four. There were two guys named um, David and Tarian. They are both um, African-American. The other members of the group are Koki Tomlinson, who is half Japanese, half German, and he is from Texas. It yeah. is Frankie DePonte, who is, por- um, like, his family ancestry is Portuguese, but he is from Rhode Island. It is Hunter Cole, who just seems to be deeply white and from New York. Fair enough. And then a guy named Sime Costa, who is from Croatia, which is also where my family comes from, which is fun. Love it. Um, who had lived in America for many years trying to make it as a singer. Okay. So these six guys, as part of Bora Kim's thesis project, form EXP to see if they can be an, an American K-pop band. And we're going to watch their first video. We'll cut this out for you guys, um, but you can just go watch it if you want. Their first video is called Love Wrong. What a... Okay. And we're going to watch it. So we just stopped like less than halfway through, but Allie, how do you feel about Love Wrong, EXP's first song? I don't 
I find it objectively bad. It's bad. Uh, no, it is bad. I mean, I thought that was just implied. Um, <laughs> it's it's bad. It's it just it does exactly feel just like a a group of all the guys you just described yeah. doing a K-pop video. And and I I get what you're saying that like it is a genre of music, but like. I was kind of with them when they were just singing, but then they started singing in Korean, and none of them are Korean. So it's like, that's why I was like, no, why? Interesting. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, see, to me, the opposite is true, and it's like, if you're going to do K-pop, the K is Korean. Right, but that kind of strikes me as like, that strikes me as appropriation, because it's like, like, Britney Spears had a song that was like, mm, poppy. You know what I mean? And it was, like, that's, like, clearly, like, a Spanish phrase. And yeah. she was, like, co-opting sexuality of a culture that isn't hers. Yeah. And that's gross to yeah. me. You know what I mean? So, like, but there is, like, a catch-22 in there of, like, well, if you're going to let people do the style, then they should be honoring it and doing being in Korean. But it's, like, no. Like, why would you sing in a language that's not yours just to co-opt an aesthetic yes. for money when it's not your aesthetic. Yeah. You know? that. So that's why I'm, like, gross. And, and so, because at first I was, like, I can see how it would be something, maybe. Like, maybe it would be all right if, you know, they were just, like, taking on that energy of precise dance moves and, mm-hmm. like, emojis yeah. and, like, you know, all that kind of stuff. But so much of it... Like, when you really think about it, you're like, oh, no, but that is coming from a certain culture. Yeah. And that culture's not theirs. So. Yeah. To me, so that's so interesting that that is what was not good for you. Because for me, what was not good was much more the visuals of the video, like, felt like parody to me. Yeah. It did. I mean, it did. In a way that, like, for me, that's the yucky thing is, like, why are you parodying this, like, genre that is very popular? Like, why are you doing that? Like, they have, like, big, like kind of emoji size, like, their, their face, like, fake crying, and then, like, they're doing all these dance moves, but, like, they're just not as precise. I know. Like, if, I mean, if anything, they're just worse than every other K-pop star, which is its own crime. Exactly. So, when this signal comes out, it is not well received, and, like we were just saying, it is pretty, pretty obviously not yeah. very good. The dancing is off, the set is bad, most of the song is in English, and according to K-pop fans, the stuff that is in Korean is very poorly pronounced, which is definitely... <laughs> what a shock. Culturally appropriate. Yeah. So K-pop fans in general don't like this, but it is especially non-Korean K-pop fans that hate EXP. And they're just like, we don't want Americans in our K-pop. Which is, like, another weird thing is, like, but wait, like, you're not Korean either. Why do you get to make decisions? Yeah. It seems like most Korean people are like, dumb. But, like, we're able to move on. That's the thing that's, like, at the end of all of this, like, we don't get to decide whether or not this is chill. Like... Korean people. Exactly. <laughs> but, like, you know, Korean people are not a monolith, so. Yes. I'm sure, I mean, everyone has different opinions. Yeah. So since this initial phase of EXP's existence, they have kind of rebranded. So they are now EXP Edition, as opposed to, EXP stood for Experiment. Now they're on an Expedition. Alright. Do you get it? EXP get it. Edition. Exp. Oh, I just got it. Yeah! Um, cause they're trying to kind of like, instead of being like, yeah, we'll see if this works. They're now like, we are on a journey to be better K-pop idols, to get to know Korean culture. So they all live in South Korea full time now. During the first song, they all lived in New York. They are trying to like become fluent in Korean and they're all like, okay at the language. And the music is 
better question mark. So now I'm going to show you their latest song called Stress. And again, folks, head over to YouTube to watch this. So Allie, that was the first half of Stress. How did you feel about that? It is technically better. Yes. It's much more precise. And, like, from the minute the video started playing, I was like, oh, this is exactly, like, the the beginning of any other K-pop video that we watched. Yes. So it's, like, more accurate, but mm -hmm. do they get points for being accurate? I'm not sure. Yeah. So, so the reason I'm horrified by this is not necessarily because EXP Edition exists, but because they are so complicated. Because to me... Fair. Who is a white person living in America who didn't know much about K-pop until just last week? It feels icky. It feels like they shouldn't be doing that. Yeah. It feels culturally appropriative. Why can't you just do white people pop? Your pop. American pop. Yeah. That is the place that you are all living most of the time. But now it's like they have moved to South Korea. They are trying to become fluent in the language. They are big fans of all the other K-pop groups. They have adopted the aesthetic in a way that, like, is not just performance. Like, they seem to wear that stuff every day. I watched, like, there's a really cute show um, on Korean PBS, and it's called My Neighbor Charles. And it's about... Is it hosted um, by a man named Charles? No, it's about non-Koreans living in Korea. Oh, that's fun. So I think, like, Charles is just, like, a white person name that they thought of. That's great. <laughs> I love that. But, like, it's this whole episode, and they literally, like... They have a tutor. They, like, are going out into parks and trying to talk with people to, like, improve their ability with the language. Like, all they think about is dancing and singing and getting good. Like, that seems to, to be coming from a place of love and respect for this genre of music. And is it then okay that they're doing this? Because they're not trying to do it to make a quick buck or to, like, use the stuff in a negative way. They're genuine fans who are trying to do it pot, like... It's just so complicated. I don't know how to feel. Lead me through this quagmire, Allie. I, I can't do that. Why um, not? I have two thoughts. The first is the genesis of this project came from a Korean woman. Am I correct? Yes. And it was her thesis project. And it was her thesis project. Is she still involved with them? It seems yes. So that to me, and I don't know as much about this as I would like to, <laughs> but... So, like, so many of the conversations I feel like we've had when talking about theater and, you know, diversity, which that word has just become so kind of muddled down yeah. um, in America and everywhere, um, is, like, who's in the room and who's leading the bandwagon? You mm -hmm. know what I mean? Like, who's in charge here? That's a really important question, I think. Um, and... So that to me is indicative of like, well, if she's making decisions and if she is molding this group in her image and if she is experimenting with what K-pop means to her and like what K-pop means in general to her own community, like that's something that I could get behind because if she is the mastermind behind all of this, I'm interested to see what she has to say. You know, like if somebody is creating something they have something to say. Yeah. And I'm interested in her perspective about this topic. And I think that's the thing with appropriation. I mean, again, I don't necessarily know, but like a problem that I see with it is like, if you have something to say about something that you shouldn't, that you have no business speaking about. So like if a white person, you know, 
like Iggy Azalea, you know what I mean? Yeah. She was expressing herself through like black Southern American mannerisms and mm-hmm. and phrases and all this kind of stuff and she doesn't have anything to say about yeah. that world and about those people. And so it's like I don't want to hear your opinions about that. I don't want you to be telling your story in this way. But if this, you know, so that's like, that's kind of like what I come back to. It like makes me think of a wonderful playwright, Young Jean Lee, mm-hmm. who wrote a play called Straight White Men, which is on Broadway right now, right? Yes. It just like recently opened <laughs> she's, and she's the first like Asian American playwright to have. She's fabulous. Yeah. She's fabulous. And that play is fabulous. Yeah. And so that's a whole cast of white men in a Broadway show. And on the outset, it's like, fuck. Yeah. Gross. Not again. Not again. Get out of here. But that narrative is super important. You know what I mean? That's her narrative. That's her story. Um, you know, and she's telling her story. And so, like, that's something that'd be interesting. But I'm not necessarily saying, like, that's the case here with EXP Edition, Expedition. (laughs) So I don't know. I don't really buy, I personally don't really buy how genuinely it's coming like how how, what genuine place it's coming from like even though they did move to South Korea even though they do want to learn the language like that doesn't necessarily mean that they're not being appropriative if it's coming from them in my opinion and I want other people's opinions um but just from my understanding of trying to be a good listener and ally which you know you can't be perfect but Mm -hmm. like it just, it doesn't really, like, the intent and where you're coming from and, like, even if you mean so well and even if you really love a culture, that doesn't necessarily, like, even if you really, really value it and respect it, that doesn't necessarily mean that you get to tell your story through it. Yeah, that's um, real. So that's, I think, where I land with that. But then the other thing is, like, if actual K-pop fans, like, Korean K-pop fans really loved it, I'm not going to tell any, I'm not going to tell somebody how they can enjoy their own culture. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? So, like, in that way, like, you can't really make a decision either way. I just kind of have to be like, that's not my decision. Yeah. I can say, ick. And I can say, like, from what I understand about how we should be acting. And also, I, not all the people in that group are white, but they're not Korean. Yeah. You know what I mean? What's, what's, it's more that they are American. They're American, yeah. Um, so yeah, so it's like far be it for me to tell Korean K-pop fans what to listen to, but I know for myself as Allie Rayner, who's the only person that I can speak for, it doesn't sit right with me. Yeah. But then again, my opinion doesn't really matter. Yeah. It's a conund- It's a real conundrum. It's a it's a real conundrum. That's why I was fascinated when I found out about them, was because I was like, oh my god. Yeah, I am horrified by how. Complicated. complicated. And then, like, also uncomplicated. Like, no white K-pop bands. <laughs> yeah. You know what I mean? Like, that's not complicated. But boy, oh boy, would I love some K-pop fans to let us know what they think. Okay, all I'm saying is somebody that follows us must love K-pop. It's somebody a must. industry. Guys, and also, please tell me who else I should be listening to, because now that our favorite Priston song is called Wee Woo, and... Oh, so good. I'm gonna download it. Like, it's really yes, catchy. it's really, really good. Tell yeah. me what else to listen to. You frankly. don't have to agonize over whether or not you listen to EXP Edition. Just don't and listen to other K-pop groups. Yeah. <laughs> I think maybe that's the solace, the comfort that your soul needs right now. Yeah. Yeah. Maybe that is all I all I need. But thank you for helping me. Yeah. Literally, I just watched it and I was like, I need to know what Allie thinks about this. So I made it a segment. Thank God. 
And thank God. And thank God. And thank you for your earlier segment. Yeah, I think we did a lot of... A lot about cultures and where they intersect. A lot of introspection. In, in negative yeah. ways. And we know that, like, a lot of people listening to this are like us, like, privileged and, and white and need to be having really hard conversations with ourselves and with each other constantly. Yeah. You know, like, none of us, like, neither of us are right mm-hmm. about anything. We just need to keep trying to learn more and more and more. Yeah. Um, so, we'll do our best. Yes. But while we're doing our best, we hope you stay horrified. Stay horrified. Thank you.